John 6, please look with me at verse 30. We're going to be covering a fairly lengthy chunk of Scripture tonight. We'll be looking through verse 51, a great deal to be said here. Uh, It is going to be somewhat um, brief considering all that we could cover, but it is as much as uh, it is my desire that we would be thorough in our understanding of the Word of God as we teach through it. It is also my desire that we don't get bogged down too much. I mentioned earlier, uh, John 6 is full, is deep. There is a lot to it. So much so that I have had to break it into four messages, and yet I could probably break it into 20 messages if I truly wanted to. If I truly wanted to really dig into everything that we could learn, we certainly won't do that. But um, may I just encourage you that there's a great deal more here than what we cover. There's a great deal more in all the scripture that I preach than what I'm able to cover. But particularly, uh, as I have been writing through these messages in the book of John, I have felt as though uh, my study is but a shadow. uh, Or, excuse me, my preaching is but a shadow of my study. Everything that I have learned and everything that is found content in this passage Uh, can only be briefly reflected in all that I'm able to tell you and teach you and show you from what God has shown me. Well, today is what I have called Vision Sunday for Legacy Baptist Church. In it, we have laid down a vision for what God could do through Legacy Baptist Church in the city of Buffalo. Our vision for this year includes chartering, includes ordination. Our vision for this year includes growth, both spiritually and physically. We... We'll strive toward these efforts in many ways. We'll have evangelistic efforts that we do together. Once the weather gets better, we'll be knocking on doors once again. We'll be letting people know about us. We will be evangelizing our friends, our neighbors, our family. We will be seeking for the means by which to show others that we are here. All of these things, efforts that we will engage in throughout this year. But above all, Above all efforts that Legacy Baptist Church uh, finds ourselves in this community to be, yes, we are a community uh, in and of ourselves whereby we are uh, building up unto Christ through exhorting one another, and yet it is all within the focus of doing God's will, seeking God's will, and working out God's will in the community. And this isn't always easy, is it? It's not always easy to perform God's will. It is not always easy to stand upon the truths of God's word. It is not always easy to approach others in the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not always easy to exhort, to encourage, and to rebuke one another in Christ. But it is always blessed by God. And as we consider God's will for us as individuals, as families, and as a church family, we cannot help but recognize that the salvation of souls is unquestionably part of His intent for our church. It is the topic of salvation through belief on Jesus Christ that we have been learning about all throughout the book of John. We've seen it in numerous different ways. We've seen it in numerous different applications. Last week, we spent a little bit of time focusing upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he taught in John chapter 6, bridging the gap between the teaching and, or excuse me, between the miracles of the uh, feeding of the multitude, between the miracle of Jesus Christ uh, on the water and the Sea of Galilee and the storm, and 
the teaching now that he will be expounding upon toward the multitudes regarding himself as Savior. But tonight, throughout all of the ways in which we've learned of our salvation in the book of John, I think John 6 delves deeper than anything we've touched on so far. We've touched on the great mystery of being born again through Nicodemus. We've touched upon the well of life springing up into eternal life through the Samaritan woman. We've touched upon numerous concepts, but in John 6, Jesus Christ is digging a little bit deeper. We have seen that salvation is, in fact, to use the analogy of John 4, a deep well. We've learned that a man can drink of it from the top. And yet can delve the depths and really no man could ever get to the very deepest level of the depths of his salvation until the day when we stand before Christ face to face and it all is real to us through the realization of our salvation. But we will attempt this evening to dig just a little bit deeper into our salvation, to, to plumb those depths just a little bit, to not stay on the surface of what salvation is and to just dive a little bit deeper into the vast well of richness of our salvation. And so this evening, we'll look at four principles. Four principles that offer us a deeper understanding of God's purpose for us in this life and eternity through salvation. And we'll begin in John 6, verse 30. The first principle I would like us to see this evening is God's will for you is salvation by grace. God's will for you, salvation by grace. Look with me. In John 6, verse 30. They said therefore unto him, the multitude speaking to Jesus, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe on thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is... He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then saith they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. God's will for you, salvation by grace. We recall the context within which we rest as we continue in John chapter 6. Jesus has just told them in verses 28 and 29 what the work of God is. That the work of God for which they are responsible is to believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. To believe on the name of him whom God has sent. To believe on the name of the Son of God. Now this statement was not entirely acceptable to these Galileans. Or to the Jewish mindset as a whole. Remember that we're not dealing with the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees here. We saw interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. We saw interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We saw interaction between Jesus and the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, as he healed the, the uh, man that had been impotent from, uh, for 38 years in John 5. Well, now we see Jesus speaking with this multitude of Galileans, and they really don't like his answer, that the work of God is to believe on the one whom God has sent. See, they lived in a, in a culture that had a very high expectation of work in order to be right with God. 
They saw the law as the means by which they could secure their salvation. They saw the law as the means by which they could be right with God. And so uh, they felt a very strong pull toward the idea of putting tremendous effort into their relationship with God. Now, on top of this, they felt no particular desire to believe on the words of Jesus. What was it that Jesus Christ came? Now, he said that the work of, of God is to believe on the one whom he has sent. That doesn't mean that they believe he exists. They, he's standing right before him then. They believe that he's there in the flesh. What they needed to believe was the message that he came espousing, and they did not like his message. We'll see that as we continue. And so the people reply, excuse me, ask in verse 30. It's a reply. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe on thee? What dost thou work? Now there's some irony to this statement. Jesus Christ says, your work, the work of God, the work that God wants you to do is to believe on the one whom, whom he has sent, to believe on the Son of God. That's the work that he has sent you, that he has, has called you to do in order to be right with him. And they say, well, what sign can you show us that what you're saying is true? The reason why there's some irony here is because this is the same multitude that was with Jesus the day before. You might recall what had happened in John 6. The day before, the multitude questioned him, found him, and said, Jesus, how did you get here? You remember they were all on a grassy place, and Jesus was at the top of a hill. And he asked Philip, where should we get money to pay for this bread? Where should we get bread for, to feed the multitude? Philip says, that's crazy, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient. Jesus says, have them sit down. He takes five loaves and two fishes. He gives thanks, he breaks the loaves, and he says, distribute. And they distribute, and everyone is not just, they don't just get a little bit, they are filled to the full. And now, after having seen Jesus Christ break five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 men, they say, what sign do you show that what you're telling us is true? Can you prove to us that this is true? Jesus, you have told us that we didn't come to you because we saw the miracle. You've told us that we came to you to be filled with food. Then you told us that the work of God is not found in meat that perishes, but in the believing that which endures unto everlasting life. We asked you what the work of God is. You said to believe on me. Jesus, you're asking me to, you're not asking me to come to you and commit my next meal to you. You're not asking me just to commit my hunger to you. You are asking me to commit my life to you. What assurance can you give me that what you say is true? And so we don't need to be too hard on the multitude here. That Jesus has upped the ante. He's no longer just saying, believe that I can give you a meal. He's never said that. But that, that's what they perceived. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you, commit yourself to me. And they say, wow, Jesus, what sign can you show us? Now, this is the tendency in every age. This is the tendency of all men to desire, to expect irrefutable proof of that which we are asked to commit ourselves unto. Now, I'm not giving the people a pass here. <laughs> There's no way they should have missed what Jesus did in Galilee the day before. There's no way they should have seen five loaves and two fishes turned into all of that food and not believed. But what I'm saying is, can you understand that Jesus Christ is not just 
telling them they had perceived we can get food from this man. Jesus says, no, I want everything that you have. I want you not just to commit your meal to me. I want you to commit your life to me. And they're blown back by this a little bit. They're offended a little bit by this. And the people said, what sign can you show? And notice they continue in verse 31. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they, they, they give an example here of why it was that they trust the word of Moses. Uh, Moses asked us to commit ourselves to the law, but he asked us to do this having shown us the sign of manna. He gave us manna and asked us to commit. So, Jesus, why can you not give us food and ask us to commit? Isn't that what you should? I and mean, that's what Moses did. The implication is that they believe what Moses said because he was able to back up his words with proofs of his authority from God. And, of course, he was able to um, give them food on top of giving them the law. Well, Jesus responds in verse 32. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Jesus immediately corrects their misconceptions of what happened in the Old Testament. And by extension, he corrects their attempt to compare Jesus to Moses in that regard. He tells them that Moses, <coughs> excuse me, Moses did not give them manna as a proof of authority. Well, first, he says, Moses didn't give you the manna. God gave you the manna. Let's be accurate here. Moses was not the one that gave you manna, people. He was not the one that gave your fathers the manna. God gave your fathers the manna. Then he says, second, the manna was not given to the people in order to prove to them that they ought to obey the law. Rather, the law was given to govern them and the manna was given to provide for them. So this misconception that, that manna was what convinced the people that the law was worth following. Well, not at all. Not at all. What was it that convinced the people that the law was worth following? Well, it was the fact that they had been redeemed by Almighty God. It was the fact that the law came from the mouth of God as a burning flame was on top of Mount Sinai. It was the fact that the holiness of God was unavoidable to this people and they could not do anything but recognize that this was a God that was worthy to be served. In fact, manna was a response in some ways to their murmurings. Jesus quickly, however, gets back to the main point. The people were diverted here. They're, they're still stuck on food. They're still stuck on manna. They're still stuck on the physical. He diverts them back to the main point again. This is the point which the father, excuse me, that the Father gives true bread from heaven, which comes down and gives life into the world. That's the point. The point is not being fed. The point is not not being fed. The point is that Jesus Christ is there as the means by which God has chosen to give life to the world. The manna of the wilderness was temporal sustenance for Israel's wilderness journey. Temporal grace to sustain them during the consequences of their sin. Remember those 40 years in the wilderness was a consequence of their refusal to enter the land the first time. So manna was a temporary grace in sustenance to get them through those 40 years. But the bread which God was sending through Jesus Christ, the bread that was Jesus Christ, that bread of life was far better, far superior than anything. 
that their fathers had eaten in the wilderness. Now the people respond again in ignorant zeal. The verse 34. Lord, evermore give us this bread. I think they're still stuck on the physical. This is what Jesus wanted them to say, however. He wanted them to, to want this bread. Give us this bread. The bread of life. Notice how he responds in verse 35. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. He reiterates the very thing that began the conversation to begin with. The very thing which these people had no interest in hearing. That the work of God was to believe on the one whom he has sent. See, we're running in circles here with these people. They say, Jesus, here you are. We were looking for you. Jesus says, you, you didn't come seeking me because you saw the miracle. You came seeking me because you're hungry. They say, well, we would like to do the work of God. Jesus says, here's the work of God to believe on him who he has sent. Well, that's not a good answer. So they say, but Moses gave manna in the wilderness. Jesus says, wait a minute. God gave you that. Moses didn't give you that. This was not a proof of authority. This was sustenance. And he says, however, God now would like to give you bread forever. They say, yes, give us bread forever. He says, I am that bread of life. We've gone full circle all over again, and the people are starting to get frustrated again. I mean, you, you can, as, as they respond to Christ, you can hear the frustration in the text. You can hear the frustration as Jesus Christ keeps coming back to the same point, and they, it's not that they don't get the point, it's that they don't want the point. And see, this is, this is what he says in verse 36 and verse 37. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. You know what I'm telling you, people. You just don't want to hear it. And here we find that interesting characteristic of human nature that touches each of our lives. That touches every church in this area. That touches religion and Christianity as a whole in this country. All humans love the concept of God's grace. Can I, can I just say that? You even have men who hate God. They claim to hate God. But you know, this concept of the grace of God, if, if that was everything that the gospel spoke of, see, humans love this concept of the grace of God. Everyone loves the idea that God has sent grace, He sent forgiveness into this world, that He sent love into this world. That he wants to love us, that he wants to provide for us, that he wants to do us good and not evil. All of these things, men love that stuff. The problem is that we do, we, we do not like the conditions upon which this grace is founded. We do not like the reality that comes with this grace. See, Jesus Christ declared that the work of God was not found in church attendance. He did not declare that the work of God was found in Bible reading or in giving or in serving or in communion or in baptism or in confession or anything else. He did not declare that God's grace was going to pour on men. What he declared is that the work of God was to commit oneself to him, to believe on the name of Jesus Christ unto eternal life. See, 
The people didn't like this because that meant that they had to receive his message, to humble themselves before the words of Jesus Christ, to accept by faith that which Jesus can and will do for them, and that which he promised to do unto eternity. And this is where men find their hang-up. This means trusting God's word above what we want. This means trusting God's way above our own way. This means trusting that which we cannot see. And the Jews had just as much problem with that as every other man throughout all of history has with that. And so while the bread of life stood before them and made himself evident to them, they didn't like God's plan. And so they refused to believe on God's plan. We, all the time, you can turn on the television to the televangelists. You can go to church after church after church after church after church and hear the, 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 the great message that God loves everybody. You can hear about this God of love and this God of grace and this God of mercy. But if there is not the, the understanding that the grace and the mercy and the love that has been shown upon mankind is packaged with the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God. To where, though God has poured His love on all men, if that love is not received on God's terms, that love is not received. Then there is something desperately missing in that theology. Because any man loves to hear the idea that the God of heaven loves them. Yeah, I do all of these terrible things. I do what I want, but it's okay because God loves me. No man enjoys hearing that he's a sinner. No man enjoys hearing that to come to God is to believe on the one whom he hath sent. Coming to God is not receiving endless supplies of material goods. Coming to God is not me living my life as I want to live and tacking God on the side. Coming to God is to believe on the one whom God has sent. To accept the message of Jesus Christ. And that's where men get offended. That's where the Jews got offended. That's where people get offended today. But this is the will of God for you. That ye would believe God's plan. That you would believe Jesus' words. That you would believe that you are a sinner in need of something. That you would believe that you cannot find that within yourself. That you would believe that God sent His Son in love, Jesus of Nazareth, to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that you would commit yourself to that love, to that sacrifice by faith. Humbling yourself before the message of Jesus Christ to receive from Him fullness of joy in this life and eternal salvation in the life to come. And that is the work of God, to believe on the one whom He hath sent. See, they had no problem with the whole concept that God came and He's going to give us bread and He's going to give us happiness and He's going to establish the earthly kingdom and all our enemies are going to fall before us, all that great stuff. That's what they wanted to hear. But as soon as Jesus Christ said, wait a minute, in order to see these things, you have to believe my message. 
Then they think back to Jesus' Jesus's message. And Jesus' message was not, come make me a king. Jesus' message was not, come get a free meal. Jesus' message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not what they wanted to do. And so Jesus tells them, ye also have seen me and believed not. But that is God's will for you. Eternal salvation. Let's look at the second principle in verses 37 through 40. God's will for you, not just that you would receive that grace, but God's will for you is safekeeping in grace. Safekeeping in grace. Look with me at verse 37. All that the Father hath given to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. As Jesus continues his declaration, he reminds them that he is not on earth to do his own will. He is rather on earth to do the will of the Father. He's told them this time and time again, that he is not here as his own representative. He is here as a representative of God the Father. He was not asking the people to sell into some earthly philosophy. He was not asking the people to sell into the newest wave of doctrine that was coming. He was not asking them to buy the latest book, the most trendy ideas regarding God and regarding doctrine for the day. He was asking them to accept the truth of God that has been true from day one and will be true until, until the very end of this creation. Now, this is imperative to understand. How is it that Jesus Christ is different from the other truth claimers that have arisen in history? How is it that Jesus is different from Muhammad? How is it that Jesus is different from the Buddha? How is it that he is different from the Dalai Lama? How is it that he is different from Joseph Smith and his false prophecies? How is it that he's different from any other so-called messenger of God? He's different because Jesus did not come doing his own will. He came doing the will of the Father. You say, well, pastor, didn't these other men claim that they were doing God's will as well? Didn't they all come claiming the authority of God? Well, yes, they did. The problem is that what they came claiming is not substantiated in what God had already taught. The problem is that they did not live a life that was 100% consistent with the revelation of God to man and 100% consistent with the message of God for man. Mohammed's life was nowhere near 100% consistent with God the Father's previous revelation to man. In fact, it wasn't even close. The Buddha's teachings didn't even try to be consistent with God the Father's previous revelation to man. In fact, the Buddha's teachings are quite the opposite of what God the Father had previously given in revelation to man. Joseph Smith's teachings, he, by the way, is considered to be the prophet and father of Mormonism, if you're not familiar with who Joseph Smith was. Joseph Smith's teachings were nowhere near 100% consistent with God the Father's previous revelations to man. Not even close. 
And so all of these men who claim the authority of God fall flat when we compare them to that which God has already delivered. But Jesus Christ came not doing his own will, but the will of the Father. Not teaching his own doctrine, but the doctrine that was taught from Genesis 1-1 and will be taught all the way through the end of Revelation. Consistent truth of God. It's as true today as it was yesterday. It's as true today as it will be tomorrow. It's the truth of God. It does not change. And this is what Jesus Christ came teaching and preaching. And so this brief statement in verse 37 is very important. It must not be overlooked and it certainly must not be minimized. All that the Father hath given to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Jesus elaborates upon the Father's will as it was clearly stated in verses 35 and 37. In verse 35, Jesus Christ says, He that cometh to me shall never hunger, he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The will of God is eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 37 is the will of God. He that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The man who comes to God will not be forsaken, will not be cast out. The will of God, salvation by grace. Verse 35, the will of God is safekeeping in grace. Verse 37. Now, both the statement in 39 as well as the statement in verse 40 are statements of purpose more than they are of content. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? I have written in my Bible from my previous study, bracketed here, that verses 39 and verses 40 are an expression of the Father's will. Notice what it says. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but he should raise them up in the la again in the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise them up in the last day. I thought that those were content clauses, that these verses are expressing the will of God. Well, when I was studying this passage to preach it four weeks ago now, I diagrammed all of John 6 in the Greek. It took me more hours than I would like to imagine to diagram all of John chapter 6 in the Greek. And what I found when I diagrammed John chapter 6 in the Greek is verses 39 and 40 are not content. They are purpose. Verses 39 and 40 are expressing the purpose for the Father's will. The Father's will is, the content of the Father's will is expressed in verses 35 and 37. The content of the Father's will is salvation. The content of the Father's will is safekeeping. Verses 39 and verse 40 express the purpose of for the Father's will. So may I read it to you in that particular nuance. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. Referring to what he's already said. For the purpose that all which he hath given to me I should lose nothing. But should raise it up again in the last day. And this is the Father's will of him that sent. Or this is the will of him that sent me. For the purpose that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up in the last day. And so God teaches that his first purpose is this, that of all that God gives to Jesus unto salvation, Jesus would lose none of them. In other words, once a man has been saved genuinely by grace, he will always be saved. This means that the man who has believed has the privilege of living a life of complete confidence that he will 
be raised up unto life in the last day. He has complete confidence that he will be a part of the resurrection of life because all that God gives to him will be kept. Now as believers, we do not have any cause then to live in fear that we might fall short in the final hours of our lives or we might fall away unto perdition or we might not persevere until the end. Why? Because the will of the Father is that the Son would lose none that are given to Him. That God's will is salvation and safekeeping and grace in order that no man will be lost that has been saved. That Jesus will, without fail, always perform the will of the Father and the will of the Father is salvation and safekeeping in grace. God's second purpose, verse 40. God's second purpose, that every man that seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, that those who understand Jesus' message and willingly accept that message will have the hope of eternal life and be part of the resurrection unto life. That's God's purpose. That is why the will of the Father is salvation and safekeeping, in order that you and I can look forward to the eternal resurrection in order that you and I don't need to live this life in fear. I was talking to a lady some time ago now and she was relaying a loved one and how this particular loved one lived in a constant fear of falling short. And this was the philosophy of this loved one. That we confess our sins and we're right with God and therefore we are saved. But then we, when we sin, we fall away from God's safekeeping and God's grace. And so if there was to be a moment where they died in that sin, they would have fallen short of God's grace unless they could confess those sins before the moment of their death. What a terrible way to live. What a terrible way to live. In moment by moment fear that perhaps we haven't done enough or we haven't lived up to the grace of God or at that moment we perhaps didn't quite secure the enough grace of God we didn't quite persevere until the end maybe we fell away in our last moments maybe we lost our faith maybe something happened and we won't make it to the kingdom that's not the father's will for you that's not the father's will for any man That's not what God has ordained. That's not his purpose in salvation. That's not how God works. God's will is that those who, by grace through faith, genuinely accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, will be kept by God and will be raised in the last day. The gospel is intended to be good news. It's not good news. If I could have salvation today and lose it tomorrow because of my own failings, that's not good news. That's not good news. The gospel is good news. That those who have been saved by grace through faith are kept. And they are kept until the resurrection of the dead. God's will for you. Salvation by grace. Safekeeping in grace. Let's continue. Verses 41 through 46. What is God's divine method for this salvation? Verses 41 through 46. His divine method. Hear, learn, come. Hear, learn, 
Come, look with me in verse 41. The Jews then murmured at him. Can you see the frustration? They're getting frustrated here. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. God's divine method. Hear, learn, come. At this point, the Jews are quite upset. Remember again with me, these are not just the Pharisees. These are the multitude of Galileans. They were upset because Jesus called himself the bread of life, thus designating him to be the definitive divine gift of God the Father to man in order for them to receive eternal life. This offended them. This offended them for the simple reason that they did not see Jesus as anything special. That's what they say in verse 42. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? We know Jesus' father and mother. We know that Jesus grew up in this region. We region. We know that he was from Nazareth. What does he mean he came down from heaven? He seems pretty earthly to me. Jesus responds, rebuking them, in fact, for their murmurings. Verse 44, he says, murmur not among yourselves. Notice what he says Excuse me, verse 43. Verse 44, notice what he says. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Literally, the man who comes unto Jesus is the man that is drawn by the Father. Jesus is teaching that man does not simply one day choose to believe on Jesus unto eternal life, but rather salvation is a divine work of God that is initiated by God through the drawing of men unto him. God the Father draws men through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and men respond to this call either by belief or unbelief. These, then, are given from the Father or by the Father to the Son in order that the Son might keep them until the last day. Now, this is where we must begin to be very precise and careful in our understanding. Because a tertiary, a surface level reading of these verses would seem to affirm the Reformed teachings of unconditional election. That teaching whereby they say that there have been men chosen by God unto salvation regardless of a man's effort or lack thereof. He will be saved if he is one of the elect. It also seems to favor the teaching of irresistible grace. That once a man has been illuminated by God concerning the truths of Jesus Christ, he will, without fail, accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. May I tell you that while these concepts are possible in interpretation through this verse, they are not necessary. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we realize that this is not at all what Jesus Christ is saying. He is not espousing unconditional election here, nor is he espousing irresistible grace. These concepts are by no, and I call them concepts because it's not doctrine. It is teaching of men. It is logical assertions based upon 
foundational truths. These concepts are not necessary in order to understand Jesus' words here. Yes, it is the Father. We must understand. It is the Father who draws men unto Him through the Holy Spirit. One day a man is not walking down the street and just says, I'm just going to believe. There must have been a drawing by God through the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life. We know that from Scripture. It's clearly stated. But notice how Jesus Christ substantiates this comment. He begins by quoting Isaiah 54, 13 at the beginning of verse 45. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Isaiah 54, 13 says this, And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. That is the verse. What we understand then is that Jesus Christ's quotation ends at the end of that phrase. It is written in the prophets, and this is the quote, and they shall be all taught of God. That is the end of quoting of the Old Testament scripture. The rest is Jesus Christ's application of that quote. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Now it would seem apparent that the rest of Jesus Christ's words are not quoting but application in verse 45. Now this is what Jesus Christ states then within this, within this teaching. Within this teaching whereby he's saying that God must draw a man before that man can be saved. Every man has heard. Every man has learned, uh, every man has heard, but only those that learn come unto him. Do you see it there? And they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Now, could we interpret these verses to interpret irresistible grace and interpret unconditional election into them? Yes, these verses allow for those Concepts, but they by no means demand these concepts. Jesus states that every man that hears and learns will come. But though many hear the Father, there are far fewer that allow that hearing to become learning, that allow that hearing to become belief. Far fewer who learn of the Father, and so far fewer who come unto Christ. But the fact that only those who learn of the Father come to Christ does not mean that God forced them to hear, forced them to learn, and does not mean that every man has not heard. Jesus Christ would say later on in the book of John, If I be lifted up, I will draw some men unto me. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I think we can understand through the scriptures that the Father, yes, it is the Father that must draw a man unto salvation. Yet we see in scriptures that he has done a work in the heart of every man to one degree or another to draw them through the Holy Spirit's conviction. But it's not enough just to be drawn. See, because Jesus Christ says, therefore, he that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. The man that is drawn to the Father and then responds to that Holy Spirit conviction in belief is the man that comes. That is the man that has been given by the Father to the Son for safekeeping in grace because he's the one that has come to the Savior for salvation. 
I hope and trust that was clear. This is a difficult passage to expound upon. And I'm trying to make it as clear as I can. Well, we come to the final five verses that we'll be talking about today. Verses 47 through 51. Where Jesus Christ again reiterates the divine truths of salvation known as the gospel. And that is God's divine intent. Eternal life. Notice what he says in verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In these final verses, Jesus draws a strong contrast between the physical manna in the days of the fathers and himself as the bread of life. Manna. Their fathers ate the manna. It sustained them from day to day. The manna was given miraculously by God to men. The manna was received by faith daily. But all who ate of that manna are now dead. They have returned unto the ground from whence they came. They were turned into fertilizer. There's nothing left of them. They are dead. Jesus Christ says, but I am the bread of life. The bread that is indicative of life. The bread that leads to life. The bread that is defined by life. The bread of life. All who believe on him. The work of God. The qualification for receiving the bread. All that which we've talked about have eternal life. Salvation by grace. Safekeeping in grace. Jesus Christ plays every part in their eternity. For he is the bread of life. Those who accept him have eternal life. Those who reject him have eternal death. That is the divine plan for man throughout the ages. Really what Jesus is telling them is that the comparison between himself and manna is really an apples to oranges comparison. Jesus has offered himself for the life of the world. All who will receive it have eternal life. God's divine intent. God's intent for legacy in 2013 without doubt Includes his divine method of salvation. For those in the cities surrounding us, be it Buffalo or Elk River or Rockford or Montrose or Maple Lake or any of the other areas around us, to hear, to learn, and to come. For the truth of the gospel to be spread abroad in order that many may be brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so as we close, May I ask you, what is your part in the endeavor of the gospel, in the vision for Legacy Baptist Church in in relation to the gospel in 2013? What part do you have to play in God's intent, God's will, salvation and safekeeping and grace for those in this area, for your neighbors, for your family, for your friends? How can we as a church better reach our community for Christ? How can we as a church better align ourselves with God's will for man, salvation by grace through faith? As we step out of Vision Sunday here in just a little bit, may I encourage you not just to catch 
the vision for what we have planned, but to continue to help develop the vision of Legacy Baptist Church for this area. Continue to seek ways that our vision might grow, that God's will in this area might progress in order that we can become all that God would have us to be as a church in 2013. Let's pray together.